You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 5th, 2007, and this is Stephen Novella, uh, your host. And this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. And Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Rebecca is on a cruise ship in Alaska. With Randy. She's a, with Randy. She's on mm-hmm. the, uh, the the JREF cruise. Uh, yeah, with Randy and other, some other prominent It's a booze skeptics. cruise, isn't it? Well, Rebecca's what? on it. Yeah, yeah well. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Apparently, they're going to be doing some skeptical lectures at some point in time you know, during the cruise. Hopefully in the mornings. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great. That's a great cruise. I recommend it. But she, of course, will be back with us next week. Hey, can I throw? Out, I'm sorry. Can I throw out that uh, uh, to wish everyone a happy Teachers' Day in India today? Yeah, just yes, in India. Apparently, Evan? you can. Just in India. Sorry. So everyone else has to remain ignorant. But uh, in India, happy Teachers' Day to all our India listeners. <laughs> Thank you, Evan. Did, Did we, we ever get we an have email any? from someone in India? I, I, don't, I don't even remember. Oh shit! Have we? I I believe we do. Several. I don't, I don't remember if we've ever gotten any emails from any listeners in India. Well, if you, uh, any listeners out there are from India, s- send us a shout out to let us know that you're out there. This is our 111st episode. <laughs> I love that. Hi, right, Bilbo. <laughs> little tip of the hat to uh, Tolkien. Right. Um, we have an excellent interview coming up later in the show with Bill Nye, the science yeah! guy. Yeah, I can't but, wait for uh, that. Yeah, <laughs> very good. But but first, let's do some news items. One news item that's been making the rounds this past week deals with the uh, Nepal Nepal's state-run airline, who apparently sacrificed two goats to appease the Hindu sky god following technical problems with one of their Boeing seven fifty seven aircraft. So wow. that was that was their response to the technical problems to kill a couple of goats to appease the gods. I wonder if it worked. Well, I don't. I, the plane didn't crash. Do you think they have like a little like pen at the airport where they keep them and they raise them there? Yeah, that would that would be efficient. You keep goats right at the airport, sacrifice them as needed well, to the sky god. Right next to the doesn't toolbox. Sa- it doesn't have sound you- like it's something that's done very often. But wouldn't after they sacrifice the goats, just wouldn't you love t- just to see the wings fall off? <laughs> just something like that happen. Just well, while it's on the runway, maybe, yeah. Stuff. Yeah, well, no, and, no, and actually, nobody would, in it, of course. I'd to see absolutely nothing happen, because anything would be, will be interpreted as, uh, <laughs> as significant. Right. Although but nothing will be, too, right? The sky guy. Right. I mean, but the sky It's guy? a win-win situation. I mean, think about that. I mean, think about back thousands of years when people were worshipping, you know, Zeus and, uh, and and Thor and whomever else. I mean, this is what that smacks of. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible that people kind of really... <laughs> Still take that seriously. I, I don't know what to, much more to say. Every now and then, something sticks out in the news where it's just a bit of medieval, a bit of medieval mentality, you know, popping into the 21st century. That's what that's what I was thinking after I read it. My first thought is, what the hell year is it? Come on, isn't it incredible? I mean, in the face of this Boeing 757, this magnificent feat of science and engineering, you're standing before it. The, the the hundred years of of of, aer- of um, aerodynamic study and flight study that went into achieving this point and getting to this point of having this magnificent airplane and you're sacrificing a goat to the sky god is such a juxtaposition and contradiction. Yeah, just it's stark. Who makes the decision? Did, did one pilot turn to the other and say, "Oh, the plane does not work. We must get killed the goat." 
<laughs> when does that happen? I think it was a, it was probably somebody above the pilot. Uh, it's a higher only the highest officials can decide when to go to the slot. The guy in the tower. I mean, <laughs> please help me, Steve. Yeah, you wake up in the morning and uh, before you step in your car, you sacrifice a rabbit. You know, you buy some lotto tickets. <laughs> yeah. You sacrifice ten frogs. I mean, you know. Uh, Three hundred people years be doing now, that. Some complete jackass is going to be taking a homeopathic remedy in a spaceship going to Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably <laughs> true. <laughs> That's good, Jay. The next two news items also are thematically linked, almost in an ironic way. The first one deals with the King Tut exhibit. Um, there's been some controversy over this exhibit based upon the the way that King Tut is being portrayed. Uh, there are some in the African-American community who think that he is being made to look too Caucasian or too white, and that to be historically accurate, he should have more uh, more African features. And this has become, become quite, quite a bit of a social controversy. You know, I, I'm always interested in the intersection between you know, culture, uh, politics, and science. This is the kind of question that you would think would be pretty uh, definitively answerable by science. And yet it gets turned into a, uh, a political sort of hot-button question or topic. What, what was the race, if you will, of King Tut? This is not my area of expertise, but my reading of, uh, of the, the, the science um, that has been expressed on this issue is that there's pretty clear evidence that you know, we have a pretty good idea of what, what color he was. That we actually do have... Depictions of King Tut, where the, where his skin, right. the, the color of his skin is preserved. I mean, so the, the 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 artist at the time portrayed King not only King Tut but other you know other Egyptians, and they you know gave them a certain skin color. This the skin color that was used was kind of tan, you know, halfway between maybe European and African, and Sub-Saharan African. Which which also makes uh, sense in terms of that you know northern Africa where Egypt is does have is a place where there's a lot of mixture of of blood from um, the sub-Saharan Africans and Mediterraneans or Europeans. So you you would expect kind of a midway features for for people living at that time uh, and in that region. I, and yet um, there are those who think that it is, it is somehow um, you know racist or you know dissing. Africa or denying that King Tut was Egyptian and that Egypt that Egypt is in Africa. This is the the, the what's interesting about these kind of topics is you know I, I think it's very important for us to separate any scientific issues from any sociological or political issues. You know of, of course we want to accurately and fairly represent you know histories without bias uh, without prejudice, but. We shouldn't subjugate the, the the scientific questions to the the ethical or the political necessities. King Tut was what he was, and and that should be okay, regardless and regardless of what that may or may not imply. It it was also I found it very interesting that it was juxtaposed in the last week against another news story. This one also dealing with race. And this is a, a new genetic study by Craig Venter. Now, Craig Venter is one of the uh, geneticists who is working on the Genome Project. And he, over the past years, has, been, has taken the position that, that our best um, genetic scientific evidence shows that all people are 99.9% genetically alike. 
Therefore, he is in the camp that believes that race as a scientific biological concept does not exist, that it's an illusion, that it's a social construct. Um, so again, the, the, what, what struck me is that here on, on the one side, there are those saying that you know, we have to accurately portray the race of this historical individual. And on the other side, there are people, again, with, the, with actually the same political goal, you know, to make the point that you know, racism is a bad thing, which of course I totally agree with, but they were taking the, the very opposite approach to say that, well, race doesn't even exist. So it's just it's, it's purely a social construct. Um, and, and again, I think the underlying issue is that, well, either way, we need to get the science right and, and not alter the science because it happens to serve a, uh, a social goal, even if that right. social goal is a good one. Or is perceived as politically incorrect in some way. Right. I, I, in fact, I would argue, especially if that, that social goal is a good one. Steven Pinker, in his book, The Blank Slate, made an excellent point. He, he said that the science is what it is. And as a society, as a civilization, you know, we may come to certain conclusions about what is ethically and morally appropriate. For example, we, could, we can and, and I think should decide that, that racism, that uh, discrimination or hatred uh, of individuals, identified groups of people you know, by their superficial characteristics or their inherited characteristics, is an immoral and unethical thing, a bad thing for our species, for our civilization. But if you make that ethical judgment dependent upon a scientific fact, then you have put yourself into a very awkward position. Because if those scientific facts are, turn out not to be true, if the scientific facts that you're counting on turn out not to be true, then you either have to deny the science or you have compromised your moral principle. It's much better to say the, this moral principle stands on its own. It stands on its own as a moral principle. It is not dependent upon what science discovers. And, and we'll just let the science discover what it does, and we'll deal with that. It'll inform our debate. It'll inform our understanding of this issue and how we deal with it. But we're not going to say that you know, there isn't racism because there aren't races. Because what if the information changes? Now, does that, does that make racism okay? Well, no, it's still not okay. So then why did you have to make it dependent upon the claim in the first place? And that's, that's exactly what happened in this case, because now Venter, based upon new studies, um, has had to, to change the, this estimate. So initially, the consensus was that people were 99.9% genetically alike, or you could say the other way that the, the percentage difference between or among uh, individuals was about 0.1%. Now he's saying that new information suggests that it's actually much greater than that. By 7 to 10-fold, it's as high as 1%. It may be even higher than 1% difference. Uh, that's a lot. That is a, that is a tremendous amount of difference, especially to put it in context, the difference between humans and chimpanzees is about is estimated at between 2 and 5%. Mm. So does that mean that races now do exist and... That does um, all of the rhetoric about you know why you know racism is unscientific because races don't exist now compromised by this change of information? I I think it shouldn't be. I, now I think it's the question of whether or not race exists or is it a social construct. I find an extremely interesting and illuminating one about in several ways. First, I think honestly 
that the question is really a false question. It's like a false dichotomy, whether race exists or doesn't exist. Because it, it implies more than, than you think it does. Mm-hmm. You know, the implication of race is that, it, that it, it's kind of like, as they described in the article, like a subspecies. Mm-hmm. Where, whereas culturally, when we use race, we're not, I don't think people really mean it that way. Whereas scientists, if they, when they use the term race, they might imply, they might mean that it's a, that it's a subspecies. That is mm-hmm. distinct enough genetically to to warrant, uh, you know, being a subspecies, and they're kind mm-hmm. of like on their way to a new species, which doesn't really apply to the way people generally use the term race. I think. Yeah, well, it absolutely depends on how you define the word. Uh, if you def- if you define it as an identifiable subgroup, then I th- I think, in my opinion, that race does have some meaning. That it do- that races do in fact exist in, in real biological sense. Right, but what distinguishes those races, Steve, is, is completely trivial. Well, again, that depends upon your... That's a, that's a totally subjective definition. And uh, my point is Why? that it's a continuum, that there, and that there's a continuum from an individual to a family to a larger group to a subpopulation, whether you call that a variety or a race... And even a, a species is a vague boundary. Um, it, it's so, yeah. The, ba- the the boundaries are vague at every hierarchical level. That's how evolution works. They're not discrete. So the same kind of arguments that you can say that race doesn't exist as a useful scientific or biological concept, you can apply at every level of that hierarchy, including species. Right. And in fact, there are those biologists who say that, the, you know, and if you listen to, like, for example, the Evolution 101 podcast, they make the same point that that, that species are actually, a very, it's a very loose, kind of fuzzy at the boundaries concept, that really, genetically, populations and groups, you know, flow one into the other, and, and intermix at the fringes, and there's really no clean demarcation line at all. So it's cultural. So that's why I say it's a false... No, but, but, but again, it totally depends. That's why it's such a fascinating question because it depends on how you think about it. Um, it it's, it's kind of a false dichotomy. So I, I do think that saying because there's no clean boundary line, because it's fuzzy at the boundaries, that the concept is not meaningful is the logical fallacy of the false continuum. Right, so I think it's just as useful, it's just as valid as the concept of species is, even though species is also a fuzzy at the boundaries, you know, concept that's not discrete. You always have to define it operationally. If you say, so you can't just say, do do do, do races exist biologically? Because the, you, that's not a meaningful question unless you operationally define what race is. So those who argue that race is a social construct would say, for example, that there are no traits which exist 100% in one identifiable group and 0% in all other groups. Okay, if that's your criteria, then races do not exist by that criteria, but that's, right. that's an arbitrary criteria. You could, you could also say, uh, but, but however, there are traits that exist in a higher proportion in certain identifiable groups than in other groups. So it's, there are statistical uh, statements that you could make. Now, the re- and the reason for this is, is evolutionary. It's because um, you know, groups can be identified because of genetic uh, isolation, right? That's how subpopulations 
come about. The, the groups, once groups become isolated, they begin to genetically drift apart, uh, or they may even be under some differential um, pressures, uh, evolutionary pressures. So they become more and more and more distinct over time. But then they also may exchange genes again. They may intermix. Uh, so. So, the, so there's not going to be any clean separation in polymorphisms, which are you know varieties of genes, mutations in genes. They might accrue some differences, but then those those differences are going to be smudged by the exchanging of genetic material uh, over time. So it's you could say you could, and again, this is why it's a it's a complete continuum. How how um, absolute is the separation, and and for how much time has the separation existed? Has it been a hundred years, a thousand years, ten thousand years, a hundred thousand years? Has there been a lot of of uh, interbreeding, a little bit, occasional, rare, frequent? It's an absolute continuum. So yeah, you can't draw a line and say, okay, now we have a subpopulation or now we have a race. But that doesn't mean that you never get to the point where you can make meaningful statements about different subgroups. There have been a number of studies to ask the very specific question. Um, for example, if we look at the incidence of specific poly, genetic polymorphisms, um, so you could you know sequence a number of genes, you know a hundred or a couple hundred genes in you know hundreds of people from different um, identifiable, you know socially identifiable different groups, mm-hmm. and then you can then in a blinded fashion, we'll have a geneticist sort those those samples by their polymorphisms, and then you sort them by the the, the labels, the racial labels that, that are commonly applied to those people. And, you know, even with as few as like 50 or 60 different polymorphisms, you can sort people by the you know the the construct of race up to about ninety percent, and if you look at a hundred polymorph yeah ninety percent, and if you look at a hundred polymorphisms, you can do it a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You you can you can correctly sort people by by race and by their genetic you know, profile. Steve, so, define polymorphism for people who might not. Yeah, because so polymorphism that. would be just uh, variations in genes brought about by mutations which accumulate over time. So I think just from looking at this evolutionarily, looking at it genetically, um, it, I think those studies pretty strongly show and objectively show that it is biologically relevant. But we have to look at it in the proper context of it's, it is somewhat arbitrary and it is absolutely fuzzy because of the reasons that I stated. And it is really just we're looking at a continuum of difference. There's also a medical wrinkle to this whole story. And this comes up a lot in articles about this. And, you know, of course, it's a physician I, I take particular interest in. And that is, you know, should we think of patients in any way as uh, their race? I mean, should I consider the risks of developing certain diseases of a patient based upon whether they're European or Caucasian or African-American or Asian? Do, do those concepts have medical relevance? And I think that that should be yet another distinct question that we shouldn't mix up with other questions about about society or moral or ethics. The, can, you, the, can you give an example, Steve? Yeah, so I'll give you a, an example. There are certain diseases which occur in di- – diseases occur in different frequencies uh, in different identifiable populations. For example, uh, sickle cell 
disease is usually found in in people of African or Mediterranean descent. Uh, cystic fibrosis is much more common in people of European ancestry. So I think those are meaningful statements. There, there are even some diseases which have been associated with very, very small, um, you know, even below a race, a, a uh, like the Ashkenazi Jews, which were a, uh, a genetically sort of isolated population. There are Tay-Sachs. Yeah, like Tay-Sachs that you're going to see at much higher frequency in that population than in other, in other populations. So there, the question is, can we get meaningful medical information about the risks and probabilities of certain diseases by considering the, um, the genetic ancestry of patients? And I think from a practical point of view, you know, the short answer to that is yes. But critics charge that, and I think this is increasingly true over time, that it could, it could actually cause more confusion than help because it, you may then be overly confident uh, in someone's risk or, or, or lack of risk of getting the disease. You may fail to consider a disease that somebody can have because you think, oh, well, people of their race don't get this disease, so I don't have to think about it. But, but again, to me, what that says is it doesn't mean that there aren't meaningful statements that we could make medically about different genetic heritage it's just that we can't apply such things simplistically or absolutely, which is, you know, to me, that's just bread and butter clinical thinking, you know. And in essence, what we're doing is just using, using ancestry to infer genetic risk, right? It, because we can't sequence everyone's genome and, and say exactly what their genetic risk is. We use family history, right? So family history is something we use to infer genetic risk. And you know the the uh, the history of the population from whom one gets their genetics is really just an extension of that to infer what their risk for certain things may be. So I think it's just as legitimate as asking them if they have a family history of of heart attacks. Uh, however, within five to to ten or fifteen years, I think this is all going to change because the the technology for sequencing DNA is um, you know increasing exponentially in that we can do it faster, cheaper. And we'll get, we're going to get to the point where we don't have to infer genetic risk by things like family history or ancestral you know, uh, origin. We'll be able to just sequence your DNA and tell you exactly what all your genetic risk factors are. So the, 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 the practical question of is it medically useful to think about you know, different races will become just obsolete in, in you know, definitely, I think, within the next 10 to 15 years, which is you know. But for now, it's a, it's a fair tool to... Uh I think so, as long as it's used with your eyes open, knowing its limitations, just like anything. It's, mm-hmm. you, know, you can get some inferential information from it, but it's not absolute. You shouldn't completely eliminate the possibility of certain diseases because of someone's apparent genetic background. Steve, real quick, you, you mentioned that if you gave a geneticist 100 you know, sequences, genomic sequences, he could, he could if he had enough of them, um, he could mm-hmm. distinguish the, the various races. Now I've I've read yeah these studies have actually been done okay That's right now how does that jive with something I've I've read in different places and kind of believed and was an important part of my belief of why you know race really isn't important is the fact that uh, that if you take two groups of people say two races and it, it, isn't it a fact that the uh, the difference within the group genetically is greater than between groups. Yes. Yeah, that's that, true. That is that, true. That's, that's absolutely – I'll give you the numbers that 
uh, the the variation within a group is is usually about ninety percent of of human variation, whereas the difference between different groups is only about ten percent. But that doesn't mean that you still can't statistically distinguish the groups, right? Based and on these polymorphisms. Yes, that's right. Well, let's move on to your questions and emails. The first question comes from Scott Nickelbein in Madison, Wisconsin, and he writes. Here's a link to a fascinating, if depressing, article summarizing several studies which seem to indicate that humans have a tendency to remember frequently repeated myths as true, even if they were repeated in the context of debunking them. I thought of you folks when I read the article's final sentence. Mythbusters, in other words, have the odds against them. Well, Scott, thank you for the email. I think a couple of people pointed this out to us. We have seen this uh, before. There have been psychological studies, for example, that show um, when a, a show depicting a scientist debunking a belief actually increased the audience's belief in that claim. That just pay a scientist or a skeptic or, or whatever, uh, giving the time and attention, bothering to you know, debunk a belief, lends it a certain amount of credibility. And that actually tends to increase the audience's belief uh, in that topic, in that claim. Um, and th- now there's, there's new data uh, by, by um, social psychologist Norbert Schwartz uh, is, is supporting that and also adds more details to it. What he found, for example, is that... Uh, so this was a, a study looking at a flyer produced by the Centers for Disease Control trying to combat the myths about the flu vaccine. And then they were seeing what are the uh, what, what was the effect of this flyer on the beliefs of you know of people who read it, and what they found was that even just thirty minutes after reading the flyer, that older subjects misremembered twenty eight percent of the false statements false statements as true. Wow! And and three days later, they remembered forty percent of the myths as true. Right. So the flyer was saying, um, for example. The side effects are worse than the flu. And then said, this is false. This is a myth. You shouldn't believe this. The side effects of the vaccination. Yeah, the side effects of the flu vaccine are worse than the flu itself. Three days later, 40% of the people who read that as false remembered it as being true. What percentage? 40? 40%. 40. 40%. But 28% just after 30 minutes Yeah, so which means immediately. They immediately came away... They came away from it with the opposite conclusion, and then that increased over time. So memory made it worse over time. Preconceived notions take over. You know, they must have had that uh, in their minds for many years prior to that. Then they read it, and okay, well, this is actually actually. What well, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that if they felt that their the myth was being confirmed, or maybe they even hadn't thought about it. It's just that the statement stuck with them, and not the fact that it was. That it was false. Well, why is that? Is there a reason behind that? I wonder if the presentation of the data, how much of an impact that has. Well, yeah, yeah. So this this provokes a lot of sub questions, like the ones you just asked. You know, is it the way? Is there, are there differences in the way the information is presented that would affect this? Does prior belief affect it? Um, you know, these are all things that need to be right. fleshed out with with further studies, with further investigations. And I'm not seeing that in that that data in these current studies that we're talking about. It's pretty disheartening. You yeah. know, it's it's kind of it's it's too bad that uh, maybe you know maybe it's just human psychology, but it really is too bad that that happens because it just seems that uh, you know 
when at what point in time does that switch happen where you do remember? How many times do you have to hear it? Well, it shows you how hard our job is. You know, um, the, it, it's difficult. You can't just give people information and then expect that that's going to result in the, the desired result. But that's that just comes back to the need to teach critical thinking and and to and to change the way people process information. Because there are right? scavengers out there who take advantage of that very mm-hmm. fact and that very thing in people, in all mm-hmm. in all people. Frankly, if you don't actively combat it, anyone can yeah. fall for anything. Yeah, you have and, to. You can't. And you you have to change people's habits, their intellectual habits. You have to give them the habit of thinking critically, of questioning, of going through the process, of questioning their own beliefs, of asking, does this really work? What is the evidence? If they don't have that habit, yeah. they're not going to do it. Yeah, it's I guess not, it's not gonna people like us, I mean, not to put us on a pedestal in any way, but this is the one thing that we love. We, sh- we have deliberately sharpened our, you know, our bullshit detectors. Yeah. But so it, didn't hap- it didn't happen, o- yeah, it didn't happen overnight. It didn't yeah. happen overnight. Yeah. Absolutely not. Well, we, we have a great interview coming up, so let's go on to our interview. Joining us now is Dr. Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Oh, it's so good to be here. Hey, Bill. It's uh, really a pleasure to have you. Actually, we've been trying to get you on our show for, uh, for quite a while. You're you know, one of our, our heroes, as it were, our role models. Well, thank you. If I could, let me just read something that's on your website just to launch my first question. You wrote that you are a scientist, an engineer, a comedian, author, and inventor, a man with a mission to help foster a scientifically literate society. So uh, in that mission, how are we doing? Oh, not very well. <laughs> not nearly as well as we, as we could be. The reason is fundamentally, I guess, we don't have enough science education funding. And we, uh, in the United, you're talking about in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, we have chosen leadership that is almost anti-science. It's a little uh, spooky. Right. So what we need uh, is to have another election and hope that we correct ourselves. The great thing about the U.S. government is it's built into it is change. So we can always, we can always change. Yeah, the anti-science aspect of the government, I'm not trying to be alarmist or crazy. I mean, this, this, uh, Denial or um, rejection of the evidence for climate change is in no one's best interest. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had the President of the United States um, expressing sort of, how to say, doubt about the veracity of uh, the theory of evolution. Right. But, but the, uh, the problem with scientific literacy in America it certainly goes back long before the current administration, although the current administration certainly has not helped it at all. Right. Well, yeah, that's true. Uh, but my goal is to get people excited about science. The PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of science. And, of course, the joy of discovery, the J-O-D. That's what we're all about. <laughs> when, you, when you first see, you, for example, you, for, I, had a, I had a housewarming party uh, a few weeks ago. And many, many people, these are grown-ups, taxpayers, voters, had never seen the planet Saturn through a telescope. Mm-hmm. I'd never see the rings for themselves. By the stars, if I may, pun intended. That is, that's bad for us as a yeah. society. It's unbelievable. Everyone should uh, see, everyone who's able-bodied should see Saturn through telescope. There are the rings right there. Well, they should have seen it when they were 10 years old, you know, in their science classes. That 
because that's that's around the time when I was first exposed to the planets and and so forth. Informally, it's agreed or generally believed that ten years old is as old as you can be to get the lifelong passion for science. And I submit it's probably as old as you can be to get the lifelong passion for anything. Yeah, so if you don't have it by 10, it's probably too late. Is that what you're saying? Ask your accountant when did he or she want to account. And they're, usually they loved numbers when they were real little kids. Mm-hmm. So this is, that was uh, when I did the Science Guy show, that was the idea, to get people, really young people, excited about it. But then about half of the viewers were grown-ups. Mm-hmm. I was one of them. people are generally interested in the, in the world around them. Bill, how'd you get started on that show? How'd that come about? Well, it was back in the disco era. <laughs> and then I, I won the um, the Seattle uh, version of the Steve Martin Lookalike Contest. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I started doing stand-up comedy. And then one day we didn't have enough material. I started writing on a comedy show because I met many other comics at this comedy club. We didn't have enough material for a comedy show in the Seattle area that was called Almost Live. And the guy, Ross Schaefer, said, why don't you do, uh, he was the host and the uh, head writer, why don't you uh, do some of that stuff you do at the Science Center, you know, liquid nitrogen. And you could be like, you know, Bill Nye, uh, you could be like uh, Bill Nye the science guy. And I went, whoa, that's it. Yeah. That's it. And I sort of set out after that. The first bit was the household uses of liquid nitrogen. (laughs) The premise being you have, you know, like anybody, you have liquid nitrogen around. I mean, who doesn't? Sure. And then you can, you know, you can roast marshmallows so that steam comes out of your nose, which is, that's the payoff. That's pretty great. <laughs> How much you is in that character? Me. I mean, I'm not always, as I tell kids sometimes, I don't really make whistling noises when I move my arms. <laughs> you watch the don't? TV show, it looks sometimes like a kung fu movie. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm not really able to do that. And I'm not always, I'm not nearly as clumsy as the guy in that in the TV mm-hmm. show, I seldom light candles and break a gas main. I seldom uh, jump out of planes without a, a parachute or step out of a spacecraft without a uh, without a astronaut suit on. I seldom do that. It's it's a bit of uh, like the nerdy mad scientist persona, but uh, in the cool, entertaining way. Well, thank you. But we we are not cr- in the editorial way. I. Right. I'm not crazy about the mad scientists. Why are all scientists crazy? Yeah. They're just dreamers, that's all. They can imagine big things. Mm. And then, of course, and it's charming. Uh, my grandfather was a chemist. And people would say, hey, you're a chemist, can you blow something up? Yes, of course, yes, or could we can blow something up? <laughs> and we love that. But all things in moderation. Yeah, but the show, the show definitely, uh, even though it was geared towards children, the charm of it, was that if you are interested in science, the science you were doing on the show was still interesting even to adults. Well, thank you. That was the goal. To me, see, to me there is nothing more interesting. There's nothing more exciting than science. Yeah. Even now. And uh, people who don't get that passion, who we've excluded uh, early on, is frustrating. You know, we, we definitely, um, I say we, we as a society, gotta really have to work on that. Well, in my it opinion, wouldn't matter except we're all going to die. Yeah. That is to say, we depend on, we are going to depend on our ability to solve the world's problems, not only politically, which are, of course, the most difficult problems, but the technical problems of having seven or eight or ten billion people living on this planet are going to be quite formidable. So we've got to get on it. 
And my big thing now is to do more with less. Mm-hmm. You know, traditional environmentalists, they want you to do less, right? Drive less. Use fewer uh, bags when you go to the grocery store. Mm. Uh, don't leave the water running while you brush your teeth. Turn the lights off. Get rid of those old lamps and put in energy-efficient lamps so you'll have you'll be using less electricity. And that's all good. But what we want to do is more with less. We want brighter, better lighting using less electricity, having less to throw away, less material that has to be processed when the light bulb's used up. We want to make bridges that uh, last despite whatever you might do to the roads to keep them from icing up. You don't want them to corrode. We want to, and the bridges, we want the structures to be flexible and last a long time, and we want them to be reasonably priced, and then we want them to be not only here in the United States and North America, the developed world, Europe, we want them to be available, these materials to be available to everyone. And these are technological problems. They're going to take scientists and engineers of the future to, dare I say it, change the world. <laughs> right. Well, so science has changed the world, and, it, and it, con- it will continue to. And it sounds like what you're saying is we just need to prioritize uh, efficiency in our research program. So we're not just, as you say, not just figuring out how to do more, but how to do more with less. Well, more, and this expression prioritize, I mean, I know what you mean, but no, what I'm driving at is instead of being in the oil business, we want these corporations to be in the energy business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if we had solar panels, like I have a, I have a watch with where the brand name is the Eco Drive. It has a battery in it, but it's charged up by the sun or light, ambient light. And it works great, but these solar panels on my watch are maybe seven or eight, ten percent efficient. They they build or um, or the manufacture big slabs of solar material, solar panel material, and the best pieces of it get sold in for satellite use, and the mediocre pieces end up in my watch, right? Mm-hmm. But what if we optimize that process, and we would do that by investing in it? And I claim that it's in everyone's best interest to spend tax dollars on that and to give corporations incentives to do that. Bill, would you classify yourself as someone who is very skeptically minded? Like, Do you, do you read the news and uh, always find yourself editing it through, the, through skeptical eyes like we yeah, do well, as skeptics? Yeah, I'm very skeptical, but I want to emphasize to all listeners that we must not interchange the word skepticism with cynicism. Mm-hmm. I am very optimistic about the future. I think we are, for example just about to the tipping point with climate change, mm-hmm. where everybody and his or her brother and sister is going to be on board with this, and we're going to get her done. We're going to make big changes and, um, and improve the quality of life for people everywhere. With that <laughs> said, I am very skeptical. I met this just charming, brilliant woman the other day, but she's into her uh, astrological signs. i got to go, nope, Chris Blind. sorry. <laughs> Can't interact with you in the same way. Mm-hmm. Sorry, can't go, can't go for the Virgo, not for me. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, the thing is that this, these sorts of things, psychics, or if you will, alleged psychics and stuff, would they wouldn't matter if we didn't, as a society, to spend so many, so much money, so many resources are devoted to this. What, to my view, in my view, is just a waste of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and once in a while, these people take advantage of. Uh, Elderly people and uh, people who are not scientifically literate, not skeptically minded, aren't 
comfortable with critical thinking. Well, that's the biggest problem. That is the problem is that, you know, and that's one one of our goals on the show is to teach people how to use their their own mind for critical thinking and teach them the skeptical toolbox. Well, yeah. it helps, well, it helps them protect. Carl yeah. Sagan, but, yeah. yeah, it helps them protect themselves. Absolutely. Speaking of, yeah, no. Speaking, you, you mentioned Carl Sagan, and um, Carl Sagan was one of the original founders of the Planetary Society. And uh, for those of our listeners who don't know, you are in fact the vice president of that of that organization. You were also one of Carl St- Carl Sagan's students. Maybe you could share with us what that experience was like to be taught by. Arguably, in my opinion, at least, the greatest teacher of all time. Well, he was very good. And you'd go to his lecture, the guy just had a manner, this way of speaking, and this passion for astronomy and the stars that was, how to say, matchless. And he had a seriousness, he had a gravity about him. The guy was quite an intellect, and he would bring in references from the whole of the human experience. He would, and he, would, of course, was always trying to take you off guard. And what we always say, any good teacher, any teacher that you remember and respected and wanted to spend time in his or her class, he was a great performer. He knew what he was doing. He'd, he'd show us these pictures of these organisms that are ingesting these these little uh, uh, microscopic objects and spitting them out. And it turned out to be a picture of a swimming pool from, a, from outer space. Mm-hmm. How close do you have to get to a planet to really see that anything's alive? And so... Uh, he was always taking you off guard and always uh, had tremendous respect for what had been done in the past, the accomplishments of ancient astronomers. Not only the stuff that they got wrong, there was a lot of energy spent on only 360 days a year. <laughs> that doesn't wow. turn out to be quite right. Uh, but they tried. They were out there trying, and that was worthy. And, of course, you know, Galileo, how to say it, just once again talk about seeing Saturn through a telescope is quite a thing. It's quite a thing. And so the big frustration for Dr. Sagan, as far as I can tell from his writing, was people don't question things. People don't stop and ask, is that reasonable? Now, right now, uh, there's a lot of, uh, it's a fad right now to put ginseng into products because it enhances memory, enhances concentration. That's what I'm going to rephrase that. What the heck is that? Enhances concentration. You mean you pay attention more? I'm skeptical. I think it's a gimmick. Mm-hmm. What, what's your favorite area of science? Well, now look. Now look, people. When hey. they offer you that job on Broadway as a dancer, don't you don't ever say who your favorite dance partner is. Because <laughs> then they're going to think that you don't want to dance with the other people. Gotcha. I grew up with physics. Physics is what really charmed me as a kid. Yeah. And lo- uh, there's a couple reasons for that. I grew up during the space age, and uh, I was fascinated with airplanes, but I claim my fascination with airplanes really started with a fascination with bees, bumblebees. Bees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, now I am not obsessed, but very much drawn to the relationship between DNA and what we feel. That is to say, what's generally called evolutionary biology. Mm-hmm. Like what part of you and what you think is a result of evolution? Seems to be just about everything, which is kind of spooky because you think you're in charge. You think you have free will. <laughs> and swacky stuff happens that indicates maybe you don't. Yeah, the evidence certainly is against what we traditionally think of as as free will and. 
what you're referring to, um, I think, is evolutionary psychology, which, which is a, a bit Could of a controversial be, yeah. field, but... Um, it's certain, fascinating, though. It's extremely fascinating. House is on fire, and the rules are you can only save one person. Do you yeah. save your mother or your daughter or your son? Whatever. And you would save your son because he or she, your daughter, son or daughter, because he or she, the child, is about the future. Your mother's about the past, right? Right. And so, and the, why do you do that? It's evolution. If you want your genes to get into the future, saving your mom is of limit. Uh, in the rules of this game, okay, in the rules of this macabre game, <laughs> saving your mother is not going to get that done. And furthermore, she'd, she'd want you to save, she'd save the grandchild, not the child, mm-hmm. also. Reaching as far into her evolutionary future as she could. And this is, you feel it. That's the spooky thing. You feel it, if I may, in your heart. Quite a thing. Yeah, and what's more is we've codified it in culture as moral and ethics. We think that the moral things to do are really just the evolutionarily advantageous things to do. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Like not killing strangers. If you go around killing strangers, somebody's going to get you. Yeah. (laughs) It's not not in your best interest. Do I love meatballs because I was evolved to? I think so. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think so too. Some friends of mine, my neighbors, just came back from Europe. And with all due respect, these people are very conservative. And they were just astonished, astonished, I tell you, that nobody that they met in Europe, they were in uh, Monte Carlo in Paris, no one was overweight. Because mm-hmm. it's just a different culture there. But what you end up with in the U.S. with just so many resources and so much food around, people are just, they can't stop apparently. Here's a question. A skeptic acquaintance of mine is investigating the possibility that the peanut allergy, which is pervasive in U.S. culture right now, is is sort of a mass hysteria. Mm -hmm. Right now, I'm very skeptical of that premise. Mm -hmm. But when you listen to the guy talk for a few minutes, you go, maybe there's something to it. So we got to. That's one more thing we should investigate. Having have to we, do ta- with have we talked about that. Brain. Have we talked about that, Steve? Uh, I don't know. We haven't. I can give you what my current impression of that is. That I, I certainly have seen individuals who professed to have an allergy, and in my clinical opinion, I'm a, I'm a physician. If you didn't know that, my clinical opinion was that it was psychosomatic. That they did not have a biological allergy to whatever it was they thought they were allergic to. They just had a psychological response based upon the belief that they had an allergy. So I, I do think that that is possible. I'm skeptical of the claim that you know most or all peanut allergies are due to that. I think that peanut nuts in general provoke real allergic reactions. Interestingly, we're going to put that to the test because we're bioengineering allergy-free peanuts. So if, right. it, if it's biological, that should take care of the of the peanut allergy um, ep- epidemic. Well, what is the what is the uh, the toxic compound or the allergen in peanuts that's being engineered out? There there are certain proteins that provoke an allergic response, and you could just oh, okay. change well, the genes. The proteins are identified. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they can't be denatured by cooking or whatever. Well, peanuts. You know, when you make peanut butter, it's it's cooked. It's roasted and it, it's it's That's hot. what I mean. Yeah, they're, they're we'll, not, need, that's a we'll need a nuts. Result. Yeah. We'll need a nut specialist to come on and give us well, the insight. Uh, it's, anyway, here's the thing. Here's the thing that everybody is. We need it. Be, it's in everyone's best interest to have a skeptical approach to this yeah, problem. Yeah. Is is this real? Is it 
is it, is it possible that it's not a real or or a chemical thing? Mm-hmm. That question alone is is worthy of a of a, a well educated society. Yeah. And, and and the the key question is how do we know? How can we tell the difference between? Oh, well, that's true. Yeah, that's your good our good friend, the scientific method. You're right, exactly. And so, uh, by the way, speaking of Dr. Sagan, you know the great thing that he that he had, and I claim he imbued me with, and and his other students is humans are actually pretty good at certain things. You can get caught up in the notion that humans are bad, and the world would be better off without humans because we've made such a mess of it. But when I look, and I love dogs. Hey, I'm kooky for dogs. I just don't know that dogs have ever pondered their place in the universe. I'm not sure dogs have ever really stopped to think about the consequences of building a canal. Mm -hmm. I think that humans have this wonderful ability to reason, and that makes us... I won't say a superior species, but a unique species. And one, and that quality of our ability to reason, that quality of the ability to reason, is is worthy of respect. It's a, it's a great thing. And so to deny people science education so that they do not develop critical thinking skills, it's really tragic mm-hmm. to raise a society without this fundamental way of learning about the world. I claim that the scientific, or, or, or how about science, is the best idea humans have ever had. The, the discipline that it takes to really understand what's going on in nature is, is a pretty great thing. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. And it's near as we can tell, is unique to us, to humans. When you were studying uh, under Carl Sagan, did you know who he was at the time? Like, how oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on The Tonight Show. No, I was there at that moment. I mean, you guys, and this is just something that happened to me. I'm not, I was uh, in his class when he said, should we put Roll Over Beethoven or Johnny B. Good uh. on the record going in, on the Voyager On the Voyager, yep. Oh, my God, that's incredible. Wow. And you voted and for Johnny B. Good? We all voted Johnny B. Good. Beethoven was, if I may, a derivative bit, as we say in comedy yeah. writing. Right, right. Yeah. And we, but he kind of knew. He, I mean, I think he was down with that set, yeah. as we say. Yeah. He was, he was uh, in a convergence on that concept. Yeah, and it was, you know, that's a thrill. And, and he used to come in, and we would all whistle the Tonight Show theme song, which in those <laughs> days, you know, <laughs> with Johnny Carson, you because know, he would appear there regularly. And so yep. in those days, he would come to class with these pictures, these color slides, and you, your jaw would drop. He would have pictures from Mars, pictures of these, of these places that, that are so remote and yet so familiar looking. This was the amazing thing. When you look at a picture of Mars, it looks like a place. You yeah. could walk around there if mm-hmm. you were dressed properly. <laughs> and take something to breathe. That's good <laughs> when you go to Mars. Was that the first time you'd ever seen images like that? Yeah, it was 1976. Yes, the Viking spacecraft. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. There's pictures from Mars, from the surface of Mars. And uh, you look at the feet of the Viking spacecraft, it looks just like any uh, like the the foot of your ladder or the bottom of a chair it was a very similar idea you have a foot pad and it rests on the sand or whatever and it doesn't sink in what's not to love we've we've talked before about how it was carl sagan's suggestion to actually turn voyager around and take oh, yeah, a picture you know so just along that line 
uh, a woman named Candy Hansen, Dr. Candy Hansen. She says, yes, my name is Candace, but I'm old school. I call myself Candy, <laughs> you know, out of my face kind of thing. She was the woman, uh, I guess she was a postdoc at that time, who oriented the spacecraft, messed around with the high-gain antenna, and was the person responsible for processing the photo. Mm. Somehow, uh, I don't wow. think she sent the commands to the spacecraft, but it was her job to process the photo, and she apparently was the first person to see this image. And the image, my friends, for those listening, is the Earth as a single pixel. Mm -hmm. A single pixel. And as Carl Sagan wrote, it is this pale blue dot suspended in a sunbeam. Everyone you've ever met Everyone who's ever lived, every emperor, supreme commander, couple in love, every snail, every dandelion, every sea jelly, everything that you know has carried out its entire existence on this single pixel. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you can see in that picture, there is no cavalry coming over the hill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're on your own, man. Uh, You're living on the pixel, the pale blue dot, you've got to get her done. Because there's nobody coming in to help out. And I claim it is through scientifically, scientific literacy that we can change the world hmm. and, uh, and make, improve the quality of life for uh, organisms everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Everywhere on Earth. Uh, can I turn for a minute to the eyes of Nye that you're? Ah, yeah. yes, the eyes of which Nye. is um, looking over, and I've seen a lot of the episodes and, re and reminding myself, and I'm looking over on, on the website dedicated to that site. The topics were a little bit more mature and a little bit more controversial than um, Bill Nye the Science Guy, which is aimed more at a younger audience. Well, the Bill Nye the Science Guy was elementary science, yeah. fundamental science, and Eyes of Nye is about issues that you can use science to understand. Mm -hmm. And we hope reach a reasonable conclusion. So nuclear waste, that's one of them, right? right. Find to build nuclear mm -hmm. power plants. It seems very reasonable that you should be able to make a nuclear power plant that doesn't blow up. That should be quite doable. France runs over 90% of their electric economy is from nuclear power. Mm -hmm. United States has 103, I believe. There might yes. be one more than that. 103 commercial power plants. There's a few more that are military. And nobody's got any idea what to do with the waste. Hey, kids, what are, you, what are we doing? It is, as one, as one uh, guy we interviewed says, the most exquisitely poisonous material known. Uh -huh. <laughs> it is really difficult business. You know, they, mm -hmm. We made nuclear weapons to resolve this conflict, World War II, and it, you can argue about it, but the thing, the, the war ended after a couple bombs were dropped, yes, okay, and then just people wanted to figure out what to do with all this, with what seemed to be this huge potential, but the technical problems with the waste are just, to me, as a voter, taxpayer, and skeptic, are completely unresolved. I've been right. to Yucca Mountain, Nevada, and it, it isn't going to work. I mean, everyone knows that. I don't try to be... I'm not saying anything especially controversial. People in Nevada do not want it. That alone is a big problem. So this is a 65-year-old problem that we've essentially ignored. Well, and, and or haven't addressed in a responsible way. Hmm. Although, potentially, advances in technology may solve that problem for us. There are at least designs for second- and third-generation nuclear reactors that... Um, that produce very little waste because they, they run... Well, what's the idea? It yeah. just seems reasonable. You yeah. dig this stuff up, 
you fish in it, and then you put it back down. I mean, as a first cut, that would make sense, right? Right, right. But what's historically gone wrong is not just corner cutting and stuff like that was Chernobyl, and not just uh, these sort of subtle problems. I guess it was valves fretting at Three Mile Island. Fretting, that's a great word. Mm-hmm. But it's this thing where you end up with all this waste that you sort of didn't anticipate. Paper coveralls, booties, rubber gloves, everything, all this stuff's radioactive. And what the heck do you do with it? Mm. It's, a real, it's a real hassle. But anyway, in the eyes of night, we also did cloning. Mm-hmm. And I claim that cloning is something you can approach from a scientific standpoint. First of all, if you clone yourself, if you're that, if I may, arrogant, and also perhaps that antisocial, or you can't find a mate that will have sex with you, who will have sex with you, <laughs> then uh, this clone, this offspring, let's say it were perfect. Let's say it, in an unrealistic sense it were perfect. Well, this clone would be falling an evolutionary generation behind. He or she would not have the advantage of a combination, a new combination of genes. And that could be a lot of trouble, not the first time, but the fourth or fifth or seventh time. Furthermore, the, uh, the people, I think, who are against what's generally called therapeutic cloning, I claim, don't fully understand it. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the eyes of Nye, we tried to, we did our best to show you that uh, it's a really, first of all, it's not like it's simple. Secondly, it, the idea is you would take these cells that are undifferentiated, these stem cells, and then you would influence them to, to become specialized cells for repair or healing of injuries. And this is a very reasonable idea when you look at the science. It's, it's something to think about. And, and it, seems, it sounds like what you're saying is something, again, that we talk about as well, is that science is a very useful tool for informing these kind of social and ethical exactly, debates. Exactly, yeah. Even though they can't I remind make them you for that, I remind everybody, science doesn't come out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Humans do it. <laughs> right. They're yeah. humans making discoveries. This is not walking around in the forest and finding some gold plates. Bill, do you have a pseudoscience that you... Would, would you consider to be the one you dislike the most or does the most damage? I, I, don't, like, I don't like astrology. I was yeah. going to guess that was astrology what you were going to say. Astrology bugs me because it's based on nothing. And even when you show that it doesn't work repeatedly, people still <laughs> run around with it. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Bugs me. Bugs me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not much for guardian angels either, I must tell you. <laughs> I, uh, no, I don't see any evidence at all. For guardian angel. Oh come on! What do you mean? We can say we can say you're not a Sylvia Brown fan, then, huh? Uh, well, I mean, no, I guess not. I mean, I, <laughs> uh, except she gives you something to talk about. But no, I'm not much for guardian angels. I, I am very disturbed when it's just television show after television show. These people have psychic powers. Yeah, these people can see the future. These people can can empathize in tele, telepathic ways. It's so unrealistic and almost, if I may, silly. It's what we would all love to be able to do. I mean, what's scarier than an old Twilight episode where the guy can can see the future and it makes him yeah. great? Yeah. Okay, and so I'm not going to say it's irresponsible. It appeals to people somehow, but it does bug me, which I believe was the nature of your question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What bugs you? Yes, that bugs me. It bugs me because of what it says about humanity. You know, and about our about some well, of our fellow and, and our culture and yeah, stuff. Yeah, you know, I was exactly. I was in Africa uh, at a journalism conference, and we met guys who do science education in the bush, out in villages where they 
they have one radio that works only sometimes of the sometimes of the week. Mm. And kids there had never seen a magnet. Wow. And he said you can you can just astonish people with a magnet. And very common in these tribes in this northern part of the country of South Africa. Very common to have people that believe in the lightning bird. If the bird lands in the tree, the lightning will strike the tree. So you never want to be under a tree with a lightning bird, if I may. Who knew? Mm-hmm. Right. But these people are, no doubt, if I may, every bit as smart as anybody, like if I may, my old boss. They're great at some things, like finding the right things to eat, uh, conducting your life in a jungle full of predators and so on. But you compare that sort of misconception to the misconception of psychics, and there's sort of just a variation of the same theme right. in the big picture. And that is, that's uh, depressing. <laughs> it gets me down yeah. that, we've, that we have come so, uh, such a short distance in, in critical thinking and skeptical thought. Yeah, Bill, thank you. We, do, we definitely admire your body of work. Let me just ask you as we close out, what is, uh, what's in the future for the science guy? Well, I'm trying to do a deal with somebody who's interested in the environment. And this would include this new thing called Discovery Green, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Disney. Yeah. Uh, the Weather Channel has a big environmental push right now. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping to stay in touch with all of these people and uh, do another series or, or set of uh, interstitial programming that would be suitable to get people aware of climate change and to get people to do more with less, to get people to see that it's important to do more with less. And this involves, largely, it involves science education. So, so Bill, thanks again. We greatly enjoyed having you on The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you very much. It was so good to be had, if I may. Thanks, Bill. Ah. Thank Take you, care. Bill. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are genuine and one is fake, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. And you, of course, can play along. Are you guys ready for this week's science or fiction items? Well, ready just to play. answer a question. Is there a theme this week? No theme. Good. I'm ready then. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't like themes, huh? I like... I didn't say that. I like themes. All right. Here we go. Item number one. For the first time, astronomers have connected radio telescopes in real time from around the world to create a functional radio telescope with the diameter of the Earth. Item number two, geneticists were surprised to discover a gene identical in mice and humans, but absent in all other primates. And item number three, cancer scientists have developed a way to detect metastasis, that's the spreading of cancer, anywhere in the body simply by examining one vein in the arm or cheek. That's so cool that two of those are science. Yeah. Bob, you go first. Okay. Um, So we have radio, number one, we have radio telescope Earth. I think uh, connecting radio telescopes like that is awesome. So that, I'm going to say that is true. Number three, I'm going to jump to three. Um, So you're saying that scientists have determined a way to to figure out if you have say, metastatic cancer anywhere in your body simply by examining one vein in the arm or cheek. Well, hmm, I wonder why one vein in the arm or cheek. Why cheek, I wonder. But I'm, I'm assuming that there's some 
something in the blood that's a telltale sign of uh, metastasis. Um, so I'm going to go. I'm going to say that's true. Uh, the second one, a gene identical in mice and humans, but absent in all other primates. I'm going to say that is fiction. Okay, Jay. Yeah, my uh, everything that Bob said, I, I agree with. I I find that the uh, the cancer one is uh, is very interesting, and I and I I really do think that's true. But the the mice one doesn't seem just doesn't seem real to me. So I'll go with number two. Okay, Evan. Astronomers connecting radio telescopes all around the world to create. A big old telescope is just way too cool to be false. So that one's got to be true. <laughs> too cool to be false. <laughs> and I, I was, I, I was leaning a little towards the uh, thinking the um, uh, the cancer detection method was going to be false, only because I thought that the uh, the identical gene between mice and humans might be the uh, enjoyment of cheese, which perhaps <laughs> other primates can't deal with because they're probably lactose intolerant. <laughs> uh, but uh, in thinking about it a little bit more, I think that is a curveball, in fact, so I agree with uh, the Brothers novella, and I'll say that that one is fiction. Mice Evan, and you're, you're part of the Brothers novella. Well, I appreciate that. I'm like an honorary novella. Absolutely. And that, and, and that uh, is a big honor, I must tell you. Okay, so, so we, have a, we have a clean sweep this week. You guys all agree. I, I think you're right about the big curveball there, Evan. Go ahead, Steve. Sorry. Was, Here we was go, very, Steve. Very compelling on. for Jay and Evan. So, well, let's take these in order. Okay. Uh, first, For the first time, astronomers have connected radio telescopes in real time from around the world to create a functional radio telescope with a diameter of the Earth, and that is science. Awesome. And That's yeah, this so is not cool. a new concept. You can, uh, if you have two radio telescopes a mile apart and they're communicating with each other that's a radio telescope with a one mile diameter um so if we you know the the goal has always been to connect radio telescopes that are farther and farther apart to get these functionally larger and larger radio telescopes the problem the limiting factor has always been the ability to communicate massive amounts of information in real time in order to make this function well last week a telescope the CSIRO telescope uh this is somewhere in Australia was simultaneously uh, connected with one near Shanghai, China, and five in Europe. And they, they connected these over the Internet. They used it to, to observe a distant galaxy called 3C273. So one of the astronomers said, it's a fantastic technical achievement and a tribute to the ability of the network providers to work together. Now, this wasn't um, across the normal, you know, publicly available broadband access. This was, they, they were streaming data at a rate of 256 megabytes per second, about 10 times nice. faster than typical broadband. Uh, and they, they did have some dedicated, uh, like, one gigabyte per second link set up in, in certain locations. Uh, so this was a project. You know, so they, they didn't just, you know, do this. Turn on their computers. Yeah, they didn't just turn on their computers and do it. But it, but it did show, it was a proof in concept, it, it did show that with existing technology uh, and with a lot of the existing backbone, uh, you know, infrastructure for, for the Internet and just with some dedicated, you know, servers, you could do this kind of thing. You can share massive amounts of information across the world. I wonder that what this will do for SETI. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it does certainly opens up the potential. Uh, number two, geneticists were surprised to discover a gene identical in mice and humans, but absent in all other primates. Here we go. You guys ready? Yeah. Yep. Ready. That one 
is fiction. Yes. Ah, you t- you tweet yeah. the real story. Uh, significantly, yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's more, I didn't tweak. It was more just loosely inspired by a real story. Right, um, okay, right. Yeah, That's so th- you know, this would be more than just surprised <laughs> you know, if, if they actually found this. If there was a gene identical in mice and humans but absent in all primates... That's like almost impossible. Not, uh, probably not literally impossible. Well, think about it. how would that happen? How would we share a gene with a, a mouse and not any of our in between ancestors have the same gene? Well, don't ask us. You made it up, Steve. What yeah, we- saying, <laughs> it, 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 you know, it would. What if we both had a gene that mutated in the exact same way? Yeah, exactly. The same end product. Uh, exactly. So you would have to, and it also depends on what you mean by identical. Does identical mean the identical amino acid sequence, or right. also an identical base pair, uh, base sequence. pair sequence, which? Yeah. You know, is is the, would that's that's you know the base pair sequence is actually well the, well they both are pretty good indicators of actual heredity rather than just um, what you're saying, Bob, which is analogy that it was this convergent that the, the mice right. and humans that the a gene just happened to have the same mutations and end up with the same amino acid sequence. Right. The, but the probability of that is very is very remote. It, right, but the still other possibility possible. is that that they derive from a common ancestor that mm-hmm. then was just lost in. In everybody, in all species, between mice and humans, which is also a very low probability thing. That is that is a non-evolutionary pattern of you know genetic variation that we would not expect to encounter. Okay, not impossible, just really low probability. So that one's of mice and men. The, I did, I did, as I said, d- derive this from a real story, which is which is interesting a, itself. A very very interesting story. Uh, what what researchers did this is at Berkeley. They looked at ultra-conserved elements. Now, conserved in evolutionary parlance means that there's very little change over evolutionary time. Ultra-conserved is genes and proteins that remain virtually unchanged, even over vast amounts of evolutionary time. Here's a bit of trivia for you guys, by the way. Do you know what the most conserved protein is? Oh, crap. I used to know this. Wait, uh, I can't, if I, can't I recall, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's the histone, which is the proteins that are used to that uh, the DNA strands wrap around. So the histones are control the the three dimensional folding and shape of the DNA. Kind of important. Yeah, kind of important. Very basic to all you know, life. Very very important. So it's not surprised that peas and humans have virtually identical histones. Uh, so highly conserved hmm. over evolutionary time. Um, so they look. So the thinking is the, the classic thinking is that that proteins that are highly conserved do not change over time are conserved because there are strong evolutionary pressures keeping them from mutating, from changing, so that their precise amino acid sequence is essential to their function, and their function is essential to life. Right. So it's the foundation. Yeah. So if they did mutate, not that they couldn't mutate, but if they did mutate, you won't be having any kids. Yeah, either you'll die or you won't have kids, right? right. So one of those two things. If you don't have kids, then you're not around. Yeah, either it's incompatible life or it's incompatible reproduction. Either one of those would be enough to to conserve, to to, to eliminate any mutations. And, you know, it's the elimination of mutations that, that conserves proteins and genes in their structures. That explanation was tested. What they did was they looked at ultra-conserved elements, and then they they created what's called a knockout my, mouse. So they have a mouse where they they take out the gene. What a tool that is, knockout yeah. mice! I love oh, it's it. It's great. Oh, it's like it's one of the, it's a basic <laughs> research tool. Uh, they fully expected that when they knocked out an ultra-conserved element, that that would then result in a mouse that would either 
not be viable, would not survive, or would be infertile. And when, but when they did it, super they mouse, could, yeah, they, well, they mighty could, mouse, they couldn't find any um, ill effects, almost no <laughs> ill effects at all. They can't tell from knocking out this ultra conserved element. Right. So that. No, it, it said almost. That gets me though, Steve. It's probably trivial, but I just wonder, you know, why they said almost. What you know, what change did they notice? Because that could be a, that could be a clue. I don't know. I don't, they, they, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't say it's, right. It's probably not, not important say. though. Seriously, because it would have to be if it's not death or infertility, it doesn't really matter. Then why is it hi- highly conserved? Is the question? That's the question. That's the question. So so we have to rethink, you know, the 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 phenomena that might lead to to uh, conservation. So one of the speculations is it, that the the knockout will lead to death or infertility, but but not for a long time. Maybe mm. even over generations, and yeah. it doesn't really matter how long it takes, as long as it ultimately, you know, eliminates the the mutation, it will still result in conservation of the original structure. Right. So that's one possible. Maybe it's just there's a delayed death or infertility. Well, geez, what else could it be? I mean, if it's not an immediate effect, you think, well, it's got to be. It's a delayed effect then. I mean, what other choice do, right. do we have? The the other possibility. Is that uh, the knockout gene is redundant? That there, that maybe there's oh. other things that could take over for it. So, well, then why um, hasn't it mutated then? Yeah, I know that's yeah, that doesn't t- totally rescue the problem. No. But it might be that just it still statistically would be conserved because you need one or the other. So mutations would tend to be selected against, and maybe that's enough to cause conservation, even though there isn't an immediate effect of getting of getting rid of uh, just one of the one of the genes. I'm not mm-hmm. buying that one. Yeah. So maybe he said one of the researchers said it may be that we saw no del- deleterious effects in the knockouts because nature provides a backup for these ultra conserved elements. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's whatever. It's, mysteries are great. Anomalies are great because it tells us, hey, there's something more complex going on here. There's yeah. something deeper going on that we don't understand. Let's start asking questions and answering them. Yeah, what's that but, great quote? Uh, discoveries aren't usually made with a eureka. It's usually, that's odd. That's odd. That makes no sense. <laughs> so we will learn more about genetics from this kind of anomaly. But I bet you, I bet you we're going to hear about this from the from the ID crowd. The oh, oh God. Oh, God. Could you imagine? Yeah. Gee whiz. Don't give them any ideas. <laughs> Which means... <laughs> That number three, cancer scientists have developed a way to detect metastasis anywhere in the body simply by examining one vein in the arm or cheek is science. That's awesome. That's Good very, That's very cool. Neat. Excellent. And, and Bob, you're right. They're looking at stuff in the blood. I actually debated with myself about whether or not I should give you the vein. Uh, as in, 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 But, you know, I didn't want to withhold that. I thought that would be unfair. Yeah, but I think it, it would. Did, it did make it considerably easier to have that bit. So... Can- cancer can, you know, usually starts in one place. It can spread. If it spreads remotely, then that's called a metastasis, and that's bad. When and when we follow patients with cancer, we we want to to screen them for metastasis because that affects how we treat them. Um, this this technique uses a laser to um, look at cells passing by in a vein, and it can identify um, cancer cells, tumor cells as it's flowing past uh, in, in the vein, and, and count them. This count gives them. the ability. Yeah, this gives the ability to sample a much larger proportion of the blood because like over the course of a minute of blood flowing through a vein, mm. you, could, you could sample you know, 100 milliliters of blood, and that's likely, much more likely to have circulating tumor cells 
right. than say if you just if you just do take a blood sample where maybe you're only looking at ten milliliters of blood. So this will greatly enhance the ability to do for early detection of metastasis. That's because awesome. When, when, when metastasis occurs, the number of circulating blood cells goes way up. Um, so so that's it's a so it's a it's a early detection system for metastasis. Yeah, it's cool technology, and they and they they worked it out. So congratulations, everyone! You guys all got the uh, the answer correct this week. Well done, Thank you, Steve. Evan, hey, give us uh, the answer to last week's puzzle, please. I don't think you need to reread the whole thing. Okay, you can just maybe just give us the essence, and then you'll know what the answer was. Sure, sure. Um, well, the the answer I can tell you is, in fact, a gentleman by the name of Graham Hancock, who's who wrote books such as um, Fingerprints of the God's Keeper of Genesis and Mysterious Origins of Civilizations. His uh, chief areas of interest are ancient mysteries, megaliths, ancient myths, and astronomical data from the past. Uh, one of the main themes that runs through his books is the possible global connection with a mother culture from which he believes all ancient historical civilizations sprang from. Right. Who was our winner this week, Evan? Uh, Ole Ivand. Ole? Ole. Ole. (laughs) So he guessed correctly first, so congratulations. Okay, and what's this week's puzzle? Okay, here is this week's puzzle. Once upon a time, there was a king, and he enjoyed reading books. His sole urge was to better express his personality through his readings. The impersonal life he led would cause him to travel far and wide. It was once said that he would always travel with his three favorite books. The first book was, was a Bible. The second book was a guidebook. Can you tell me the title of the third book that he would travel with? So, Very wrap interesting. Your, yeah, wrap your mind around that, and uh, good luck, everyone. Thank you, Evan. Enjoy. Jay, this is Steve. your debut week as our quote master. You're giving us the quote to close out the show. So what do you got for us this week? Uh, this is a, a quote from Dan Barker, who is a prominent American atheist activist and who was a Christian preacher for 17 years. He left Christianity in 84 and went on to create the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And Dan says, There is joy in rationality. Happiness is clarity of mind. Free thought is thrilling and fulfilling. Absolutely essential to mental health and happiness. Dan Barker. Thank you, Jay. Thanks, Jay. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Doctor. It was a good good show. It's a great show. We had Bill Nye, guys. Come on. Yeah, it was a lot lot of fun talking to him. (laughs) It really was. Come on, how great was Bill? He was a cool guy. Very he's cool. Good. He's good people. Fun. Yep. And we've been and pursuing him for some time, and it was finally very satisfying to get him on, and he was great. And so thank you again, everyone. Next week we will be back with uh, Rebecca Watson in addition to the rest of the rogues. Um, and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback 
You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Day is problem, proof, endless dilemma.